With so much going on in the world and in our lives, it's common to feel anxiety and stress. And when you're dealing with anxiety, you're at a higher risk of suffering from trouble sleeping. That's why I'm so happy to tell you about the Abide Sleep and Pray Meditation app, the number one Christian meditation app that's been proven to reduce stress, improve your sleep, and deepen your experience with the peace of Christ through biblical meditation. With the Abide app, it's been so much easier to get to sleep. And get this, the sleep feels better too. And with Abide's premium subscription services, you get ad-free meditation. Plus, get early access to more content, background music customization, a sleep timer, and even a journal to record your progress. Sleep better and find peace. Download the Abide app today and boost your mental, physical, and spiritual health. Right now, I have a special offer when you subscribe. 25% off your first year when you sign up for the premium subscription. But only if you text promo code BTB to the number 22433. That's BTB as in Be The Bridge to the number 22433. Don't wait. Download Abide Sleep and Pray Meditation today and text promo code BTB to 22433 today to get 25% off. You are listening to the Be The Bridge podcast with Latasha Morrison. Each week, Be The Bridge podcast tackles subjects related to race and culture with the goal of bringing understanding. But I'm going to do it in the spirit of love. We believe understanding can move us toward racial healing, racial equity, and racial unity. Latasha Morrison is the founder of Be The Bridge, which is an organization responding to racial brokenness and systemic injustice in our world. This podcast is an extension of our vision to make sure people are no longer conditioned by a racialized society, but grounded in truth. If you have not hit the subscribe button, please do so now. Without further ado, let's begin today's podcast. Oh, and stick around for some important information at the end. Remember our last podcast when Jamar Tisby said this? And we need to say, if you want to talk about threats to Christianity, let's talk about uh, Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism. nationalism. Yep, nationalism. Well, today I had three conversations that dealt with us as Christians in the third space, but specifically as it relates to voting, justice, and righteousness. The third space is a term that may be new to some, so let me explain. The first space is home. The second space is more civic, like work or school. The third space is more social, like gyms, clubs, coffee shops, etc. It is in social settings where discussions of justice and righteousness and granular nuanced issues like voting are grappled with often. Well, let's start with one of my three guests today, Katherine Freeman. Katherine is a writer, lawyer, advocate, and podcaster. She previously served for five years as the Director of Public Policy for the Texas Baptist Christian Life Commission. Now you see why Catherine was so perfect to pick up where our last episode left off. So let's jump in. So basically the whole, 
Well, Christianity went through Europe. Yeah, no. <laughs> it got distorted. Well, and it's so funny because literally, Tasha, I was having this exact co- conversation with one of my theology professors um, last week or this week um, because I have been really kind of um, disturbed in my spirit about conversations about, oh, the soul of America, the roots of America. And I couldn't figure out why that was like upsetting to me. And so I was talking to her and she basically was like, well, if you think about, you know, nations as a body, like what kind of body would America have? And she was saying like, it would be really distorted. But then she told me that the whole idea of a nation as a body, that language was stolen because Christians were such a threat to um, the governments and the sort of nationalist ideal in Europe. So that... This idea of like, well, if we talk about nations as a body, this is a rival body to the body of Christ. And so you have to be a part of this body because Christians of that Um. era were such a threat to this idea of like, I don't know, national cohesion, body politic. And then if you think about like... Because they were going against culture. Yeah, yeah, they were going against culture. They they wouldn't name, you know, emperors as God. Like the whole... um, the. The most, the thing that always comes oh to mind, gosh. like, and this particular professor had done her PhD work on Diedrich Bonhoeffer, but like, the idea of like the Nazis, Hitler was very intentional about going into the church, and he, she told me this, mm-hmm. that Hitler had his like SS soldiers. He specific, they told them go to the state church in your Nazi uniform. So their idea was, like, if you can, we need to infiltrate the church. And if we can get the church to, like, get on board with a sort of nationalist, socialist project that we're working on, when we start this genocide, no one's going to speak out. And that's, I mean, that's exactly what happened. There was very, you know, Diedrich Bonhoeffer was part of, like, a radical. There were very few people. But, I mean, like, her telling me that was, like, mind-blowing like literally his he knew like if i can get these christians to be more bought into germanness than christ-likeness mm-hmm. um you know they're not going to you know speak out or fight back against these really destructive and harmful and ungodly policies and so um yeah like christians were a threat and so this language about nations as bodies arises from this like we have to create a rival structure to to get christians out of the idea that they're part of something separate than our than our nation okay nationalism can seem like an extreme way of describing conservatism so let's bring this closer to home should we be partisan as christians is there a political view that more fully encapsulates our worldview as Christians? There is no one better equipped to answer this question of how to handle partisanship than my next guest, Jenny Yang. Jenny provides oversight for all advocacy initiatives and policy positions at World Relief. She has worked in the resettlement section of World Relief as the senior case manager and East Asia program officer, where she focused on advocacy for refugees and East Asia region and managed the entire refugee caseload for World Relief. I guess you see why I asked her view on partisanship. Honestly, there were some sonic issues with her recording, and we did our best to make the sonic adjustments. But the most important part is the wisdom she shared throughout our conversation. So check out her take on partisanship. 
so I think there is a lot of, of concern or, or fear from a lot of Christians about well, what does it mean to get political? But I think there's a, a fundamental difference between being political and being partisan. I believe that we are supposed to be political, but we're not necessarily called to be partisan. And by political, I mean the art of, of engaging in public policy, the art of actually engaging in conversations around the polis, uh, which is the way that our society is structured. And so being political basically means engaging with our neighbors, with those who are elected officials in conversations that are about decisions that impact our common community. Uh, and so there's nothing wrong with being political. All of us are political beings. All of us live in structures and governments and communities in which all of us need to come together to make important decisions that impact the common good. Now, the, the, the fine line is, is, partisan, is being political and being partisan because oftentimes partisanship can mean blind allegiance to a specific political party or candidate without realizing that there are faults with specific um, candidates and parties and not a single political party or person will ever encompass the fully politically balanced agenda that I believe um, we're supposed to pursue in our in our society. And so I think for many of us, um, we fear getting political because we don't want to become partisan. Uh, and I think that means that we don't uh, pick up the phone and call our elected officials. We don't go out and, and protest and raise our voice. Um, and we don't do these necessary actions to actually love our neighbors um, into structures in which that neighbor who's maybe vulnerable can actually thrive. And so when you look, especially in the history of our country, at specific injustices around people not being able to vote or women not, not having full voting rights, or um, you know even what's happening at the border with families being separated um, or you know systemic injustices around police brutality, all of these specific stories we've heard about injustice relate to larger systemic issues. And I think it's really hard for us to love our neighbor without also engaging in the structural systems in which our neighbors live. And so being political means using our voice, using our experiences and our values to inform conversations that really structure the way in which our society exists and is structured. Um, and so I think oftentimes if we are are, are political and we can raise our voice, we are able to influence conversations and topics around um, that especially impact us and our neighbors. Um, but if we become overtly partisan, we can actually become tools of an empire to really perpetuate injustice in very specific ways. Um, I think especially right now um, where we have opportunity to vote, we have opportunity to help our neighbors vote and engage in political conversations, it's a really important time to raise our, our voices on, on topics that are, are very important to us. And I think, you know, God calls us to be stewards of our resources and our finances and our time, but God also calls us to be stewards of our influence. To steward our influence well means to use our positioning, our voice and our power to not just vote, but to actually speak up and use our voice on matters that are important to us and to God. Meet the author of Reclaiming Hope, Lessons Learned in the Obama White House about the future of faith in America, Michael Ware. He also co-authored Christianity, Pluralism, and Public Life in the United States. And you gotta check out his latest book, Compassion and Conviction. When dealing with today's discourse, it's important to have a leading strategist, speaker, and practitioner at the intersection of faith, 
politics and public life as a participant. So let's move towards a touchy area in the third space, engagement. It's so good what Michael Ware says here. Listen. Yeah, well, Jenny's a good one to, to, to get that definition from. We, we, we love Jenny. Uh, so, you know, when we talk about faithful engagement, part of it is understanding that politics is not ultimate. If you are confusing uh, sort of political decisions with religious dogma, with sort of uh, with with the the the, um, the 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 facts of the gospel, then you're 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 going to get some things conflated, and you're going to uh, uh, you're you're going to disrupt your witness in a way that's just not not healthy. Faithful political engagement means that you're willing to put faithfulness over short-term political gain. That's one. And it, it also means that you're, uh, it, you're, you're not just in politics for your own self-interest, that you're not just going to politics to get your own needs met, whether they're material or, you know, I, I'm convinced people are going to politics a lot uh, these days for, for spiritual and emotional needs. Uh, we, we find those needs met in Christ. And so we're freed up to go into politics to affirm human dignity and advance justice. Uh, and, and, and that's a big piece of faithful civic engagement. It also means that, uh, you, you know, again, that we're going to prioritize. Now, there are some tools in the political toolbox that we will just not pull out as Christians because they're not faithful. So, so we're not going to uh, be running around maligning uh, people, viciously maligning people. We're not going to run around and uh, manipulate people for our own purposes. Uh, we, we try and tell the truth as we know it. We try to treat people with dignity, even our political uh, opponents. Uh, when we go to politics, uh, I, I, I like uh, what Paul says in, in Galatians, he, he, uh, he's talking to a community that's divided. He tells them that they ought to bear one another's burdens. That's what we ought to do in politics. And so, so yeah, f- faithful civic engagement is not about, oh, th- this is what your position has to be on this issue and that issue. It's, it's allowing and believing that, that Jesus actually has something to offer our politics in this moment. And not cordoning God off from your politics and saying, well, you know, politics, that, that's, that's too messy for God to deal with. So I'll just go in there and do what I think is best, however I think it needs to be done. And, and then maybe that'll allow me to follow Jesus in my personal relationships and with my finances. No, no, God has a claim over over everything. And, and so uh, we got to be thinking in politics, uh, what, what does human flourishing look like? Uh, uh, what, what, what are humans made for and, and, uh, and try and try and pursue that to the, to the best that we know how. After the engagement, we have to deal with advocacy, which is in Jenny's wheelhouse. Check this out. So I think for, for all of us, it's important to recognize that when we advocate or speak up for, for many of those who are disenfranchised, we're actually doing a biblical spiritual discipline. I think uh, Proverbs 31, eight says to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, the rights of all who are destitute. And you see throughout the Bible that there are specific individuals that God called and anointed to be advocates on behalf of those who are oppressed. 
So Moses before Pharaoh uh, literally was used by God to speak up before Pharaoh and to free the Israelites from slavery. Uh, Esther is another person that we can see who was used to save the Jewish people from genocide. Um, even Nehemiah was someone who was called by God to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And so these are specific individuals that God used in the Bible. And I think God continues to use his church to really um, address systemic issues and speak uh, on behalf of those who are oppressed in front of people in positions of significant influence. Uh, but Jesus himself actually is an advocate as well. It, it actually says in 1 John 2, 1, uh, that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Um, it literally, the word that we have for advocate in scripture is paraclete. I mean, it literally says Jesus was our advocate on behalf of humanity. And if we are called to be Christ's ambassadors, um, like it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 20, that for us to be an advocate is an extension of what Christ did for us. And so I think for us to be political, to, to advocate on behalf of our vulnerable neighbors is really important, um, especially as Christian values are so needed in the public square. I think there are many different constituencies with different values and different viewpoints. And for the church to be speaking up, not just for ourselves and our religious liberties, but for the vulnerable, for people who are suffering and face many injustices, um, to link arms with those who are on the margins and um, learn and listen and lead is just really important as we are facing so many critical issues in our country right now. So how do we deal with this? And what is our approach as Christians? Catherine answers this beautifully. Yeah, because I think it's hard. I mean, I think this idea, like the whole idea of what it means to be a Christian, the sort of self-sacrifice, the sort of putting yourself on the line, the idea that you would disengage from power, that like we're not seeking to like elevate ourselves among above other, you know, human beings. Um, that sort of mindset, I think, is one, I think, at the root of it for the church. I think the church had bought into the larger sort of societal and cultural narrative about um, African Americans being different or less than. And I think people are not aware. It's sort of like, um, it's sort of like the air we breathe, like oxygen, right? Like we don't realize it. Cause I think lots of people are like, oh no, I don't believe that. Um, but it comes out in like very subtle ways, right? Like the idea that like, oh, when people say, see someone like, you know, an educated black person, black man or woman, and their first response is like, oh, you're so articulate. Well, why would you think they're not articulate? Like, interrogate that question. And so this idea that like the narrative, um, rather than being true to the counter narrative that is Christianity, I think as a whole, there has been this buying into the cultural narrative. And then I think this idea that like, you can have um, like equality and justice without sacrifice. And I think you, I mean, that's just not true to scripture. Like, you know, like Jesus gave up power, like in, I think it's Philippians two, where it's like, you know, he who had no equal, you know, humbled himself to become a man, fully God and fully human died on the cross. I think you see in, you know, and it's in Jesus. I mean, like it's throughout scripture or we're like Paul, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, like gave all of that status up 
to go to the Gentiles. And I think that the narrative, I mean, I think honestly, it's deeply theological. And I think the narrative in which we have made Christianity, it is this like, we are supposed to be victors, we're supposed to be champions, there should be no suffering, I shouldn't have to give anything up. You know, I should like, and even just our level of like, care for other people, it's like very surface level, like we're, um, we're not comfortable being uncomfortable and we're always seeking, I think, sort of just the fallenness is rather than sort of like, um, you know, being in harmony with creation, with created beings, we are seeking domination. And I think that is a position that only belongs to God. And we have been unwilling to like submit our hearts, ourselves, our bodies in the way that we see Christ and the way we see men and women in scripture submit um, power and authority. Power and authority. Power and authority. Power and authority. I want to get more granular in this contentious political climate. I want to know, and I believe you want to know, what should be our approach as Christians, specifically to politics. I love how Michael addresses this. Listen. Yeah, I mean, so again, you know, politics is not just a forum for your self, uh, your self-expression and self-affirmation. Politics is about community in, in, inherently, uh, and so uh, you know, it's it's why we wrote the book. And so the book lays out, you know, the Ann campaign's uh, framework for political engagement uh, as we've seen it practiced in our own lives, but then through the organization. And you know, a, a big piece of what's happening right now is. Our political parties are claiming to represent sort of total uh, truths when at best they represent half the truth. Uh, There is one political party that is generally identified with uh, or at least traditionally identified with with conviction. These are people who who know what they think and, and, and they just move forward with it. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're principled and the principles work, even if we can't see it, uh, <laughs> working in our own communities. Uh, but, but they're, they got conviction. Then there's another party. Oh, they're bleeding hearts. They got compassion. They may not know what they actually stand for, but at least they care. Uh, th- those are not choices that, uh, Christians can make. Well, we believe scripture calls us to both, as Paul, uh, uh says in Ephesians, both love, uh, and truth. Uh, righteousness uh, and justice, compassion and conviction. And so when we come to politics, we don't take our marching orders from political parties. We don't take our marching orders from man-made ideology. We actually uh, seek to pursue uh, the, the, the full guidance and counsel of Scripture as we could uh, see it playing out in the political realm. Now, what that means is not that that you have to act as an independent actor. We actually don't recommend that politics, again, is not an individual kind of sport. What it does mean is that there will be times where you might be a Democrat, you might be a Republican, but your party's not going to capture the full truth. And, and you got to be willing to, to call that out. You got to be willing to say, I don't think this is the whole story. Or even I think you're telling a, a bad story here and pursuing uh, a means of it advancing what's good for people 
that that may run counter to to what your political party is. You know, you gotta you gotta be able to. Uh, you got to be able to uh, not just buy wholesale the narratives that our political parties are selling, but actually uh, bring uh, uh, bring a gospel story with you into politics and be willing to tell that over and above uh, some of the uh, some of the half truths and false dichotomies that uh, often uh, end up uh, you know uh, uh, taking up a whole whole lot of the political conversation. Well, if our approach to politics is through the lens of community, then we are right back at dealing with advocacy. What Jenny says here is great. Well, I think when we are seeking justice, it's really important to recognize that sometimes for Christians, our our views of loving our neighbor are very limited to the individual level. So, you know, we we want to meet people's immediate needs, and so we can you know feed the hungry or. Uh, work alongside um, our um, those experiencing homelessness and and try to find them shelter and, and enter into these relationships and they are fundamentally important for us engaged in justice issues. Um, but the the harder step is is really looking at not just the individual but the systemic is to understand that this person that we care about is living within a structure and that structure oftentimes breathes injustice. Um, I've come up with the the four A's of advocacy, and it is apathy to awareness, awareness to action, and action to advocacy. So for many of us, we may be apathetic. We may not know what to do or where to get started, and we may be overwhelmed by so many of the injustices that we hear about every day. But it's really important to move from being apathetic to being aware of something. So um, obviously, with Be the Bridge and uh, your organization, Tasha, you've done incredible work of creating awareness, right? And a lot of different groups and individuals are are sharing stories, and we're trying to raise awareness of what's ha- actually happening. And so, I think right now we are in a unique place in the United States and around the world for greater attention to become aware of systemic injustices that are happening all around us. Um, so, just becoming aware and following people and learning is so important right now. But we can't just stay at awareness. We have to move to action. And action can look like a variety of thing, it, it, things. It can be meeting people's individual needs. It can be um, you know, going out and showing up and, and volunteering and giving even. Um, but we also have to engage in advocacy. And I think that's the last step and oftentimes the most hardest because it can seem abstract. It can seem um, overwhelming. We can often think, well, how am I as one person going to change a situation? But advocacy really means addressing the root causes of systemic injustice and using our influence to bring issues that we care about to the attention of our elected officials, of people in positions of power. Um, And so when you actually look at the history of advocacy within the church, um, there have been uh, movements, right? The civil rights movement in the U.S. was led by the black church. Um, the, the movement against apartheid in South Africa was led by the church. If you look at the global movement um, uh, against slavery um, in the late 1800s, you know, that was led a lot by the British abolitionists. Um, and so you see specific instances of the church leading in these justice conversations and really looking at systemic issues of how do we change laws and policies that will allow our vulnerable neighbors to thrive. And so I think for for us, as we think about engaging in justice and advocacy, um, that we have to go through the spectrum of this four A's, that we have to move from being apathetic to becoming aware, um, but then moving from awareness to some kind of action, and then from action to actually doing advocacy and looking at systemic issues. 
And I really want to encourage us because oftentimes when we engage in issues of, of promoting justice, that it can take decades for us to see any moving of the needle, right? Um, that it can take a long time. It's like running a marathon. And oftentimes we'll see little you know, wins here and there, but we're, we need to constantly push the envelope to actually allow flourishing to happen, um, to change laws and systems so that flourishing can happen. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. has this quote where he says that the church is not supposed to be um, the master of the state or the servant of the state, but the conscious of the state. And it's this idea that as we engage in these political conversations, that we are there as a church to prick the conscience of our elected officials, to constantly remind them that there are things that are happening in our society that are not right. Um, and that can you know, be a wide variety of issues. But if we um, can constantly speak up with our values, to speak up with the things that we care about, our voices and our experiences, then I think those are the things that are necessary to really start changing the conversation around the issues we care about. Okay, y'all, I still can't let go of the nationalism piece. I guess I really want to know how it became intertwined with theology. Catherine really broke this down. So I have been very disturbed about just conversations about um, the soul of America, like what is America at its core kind of thing in it. And I didn't understand like why I was feeling this like tension about it. So I went to talk to one of my theology professors and she basically told me, she's like, well, you know, if the nation, if America is a body, what kind of body would it be? And she basically told me um, that the history of that like frame or like referring to nations as bodies arose out of this desire to be a counter to the body of Christ. So basically the whole idea of referring to nations as bodies, um, basically Christians were such a threat to the nation and empire that they had to come up with a rival body. So essentially this idea of referring to nations as a body is really the idea of like, we're creating a rival body to the body of Christ because Christians don't, their first allegiance isn't to the nation. Like, you know, they're living in ways that are countercultural and ways in which we feel like are harmful to the national identity. So whether, you know, how they're loving their neighbors, um, how they're um, living in community with one another and they share, yes, taking care of needs of the poor, how they're welcoming of immigrants or just, and, and just think about whatever you think is like countercultural in this time period. And so the idea was like, well, if we start talking about the nation as a, a body, that they would be, um, members of our body and choose the body of the nation over being a member of the body of the Christ body of Christ. And I mean, I think we see throughout history that that has been all very seductive and very, tem you know, um, tempting to many, many Christians. Um, the professor I was talking to is an expert in Diedrich Bonhoeffer. That's what she did her PhD work in. And so we were just talking about the um, church in Germany and how Hitler specifically told um, the SS Nazi soldiers to go to the state church in their uniforms. So the idea that like slowly you're like his thing was like, if I can capture Christians and they are more loyal to Germany and, you know, patriotic about Germany, they'll be less likely to speak out when we basically commit genocide. And so, um, and it was very successful. I mean, there were very few, I mean, Diedrich Bonhoeffer and then I never remember his name, but the movie A Hidden Life, like, which if you haven't seen, please see that movie because that man lived in a way that was so radically countercultural 
it will, I was in tears because you're, it's, I think we have this idea that like, we're going to be popular and the way in which Christians live should be widely accepted, even among other Christians. This man was ostracized by the people he'd gone to church with every Sunday. And, you know, at one point, I think one of the most significant points of the movie is, um, and this, this goes back to like what we're talking about and what we're called to, um, how we're called to live our lives as Christian. You know, one of the soldiers tells him, no one's going to remember you. This is totally insignificant. Nobody has joined you in this protest against serving in the Nazi army. army. Is it even worth it if no one cares? Like literally no one cares and everybody thinks you're crazy. And he has to decide and he decides, you know, like I don't care what other people think. I'm going to be loyal to, you know, God and to Jesus Christ. And I just think that what happens and what we're talking about is there has to be a choice. There has to be a separation of like who I am as an American and a citizen of this democracy and who I am as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And I think oftentimes we blend those two things together as if America is like a Christian nation and it it doesn't matter that we've made an idol or that we live in a way where those identities are blended. Because the thing, the reality, reality is there should be a rubbing up against whether you're liberal or democrat you should feel like i can't go with that because my first identity is the citizen of the kingdom of heaven you know like i can't go with that and if you never feel that tension if the country is always going what you feel like aligns with god then i would say that the god that you're worshiping is not the god of the bible it's not the jesus of the red letters because i just you i don't know how you get there because i mean the man was executed by the state because you know and so i just so i mean that's what i would say with that i mean this this idea that like yeah we're not jesus has no rival here on earth and if you live in such a way that like yeah that whatever country you're in um is some sort of rival for your loyalty, I would just ask, you know, like prayer and worship and going back to scripture and allowing that to form you in a new way. And allowing that to form you in a new way. This led me to this question with Michael. Yeah, I think, and I think we have some really good examples of that when we look at the Old Testament, Testament, and we look at Daniel's role. And if we look at, you know, um, you know, um, Joseph's role, you know, just, just so yeah. many times, you know, where, you know, you, there's this healthy third space, Yeah. you know, and how do you maintain that with having been in Washington, having worked under a political um, party, like how did you maintain that healthy third space and, um, and what were you yeah. able to accomplish during that time? Well, so it's really important that your political community is not your primary community. Mm, that's good. And so um, when, you know, I have young folks uh, reaching out to me all the time when they're coming to D.C. for college or they just got their first job in the city. And, you know, I tell them you, you, it's easy to come here, think, you know, I'll get settled and then I'll find a church. And I've just seen over and over again, if that's your approach, you're not going to find a local church until you've been here two years. I mean, it, just D.C. is a vocation-centric city. And so if if, if you're not, uh, you, you can get swallowed up in the work. And so I advise people, one of the first things you should be doing is trying to find a local church. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and, and and that's your, that's your primary community. I, I mean, it's really important to not be... Because uh, if you're constantly surrounding yourself, and especially in a city like D.C., if you've got a political job, 
all your, you know, at least a third of your day is taken up by um, having political standards reinforced in your life and political divides being reinforced in your life. And unfortunately, I think this is something that's happening outside of people who work in politics now. You, 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 I, I meet people all over the country who, you know, are are spending hours and hours and hours reading political news, watching, uh, listening to talk radio, getting home, watching uh, cable news talk shows, uh, political talk shows at night. Political com- community is is folks folks uh, primary community. So that would be the first thing I'd say. You you gotta. You got to make sure that your political community is not your primary community. Um, And and then second, you know, there are there are all kinds of um, uh, disciplines that you can instill in in your life. So um, I I try and make sure that I am I am reading news and opinion that that uh, that uh, that contradicts my point of view, that challenges my point of view. That reminds me again that politics is not ultimate. That politics is prudential; it's penultimate. And, and part of what that means for Christians is that you know Scripture doesn't provide a ten-point plan for the best way to do healthcare in this country. Scripture doesn't provide a ten-point plan on criminal justice reform. As Christians, we're seeking to apply scriptural principles to the problem ahead of us, uh, to the problem in front of us. But that doesn't mean that our sort of the way that one Christian thinks is the right way to do that is the right way. Um, There's this idea that um, Christians should have a, which I think is right, that Christians should have a level of uh, their their political engagement should be tinged with ambivalence. Mm -hmm. And and it's that tinge of ambivalence that creates the the third space. It it, it allows you to interact with people uh, who you may disagree with vehemently. Um, political uh, on a political issue or on a set of political solutions, but that tinge of ambivalence, you know, helps you helps you remember. You know what? I can look in history. I, I can look in the past to Old Testament certainly, but I can look in the past to twenty years ago and see that people I respect, people who were champions for justice, uh, thought that uh, thought that they knew the way to go on a certain policy problem, and it. It turned out not to be the way. It, it turned. It turned out to have some unintended consequences. It turned out to even backfire. And so uh, I'm no better than they are. <laughs> and right, so right. and so I, I gotta. I, I want to make sure that I'm being sharpened. I want to make sure that I'm taking the full counsel uh, that's available to me. And, and and so that's. It's just critically important. And, and I guess the last thing I'd say on this is. This is not to downplay the importance, uh, the seriousness of some of the issues that confront us. I mean, that's that's not what this is at, at all. Uh, I have the deepest respect and have partnered with uh, a, a, a activists who are focused on specific issues. I'll, I'll tell you what I've found, and whether we're talking about people like Jenny or I mean, mm-hmm. so many others, um, it's actually the activists who have actually been on the ground, who have actually been doing the work, who actually have uh, the, 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 the right level, in my view, of often have the right level of confidence in 
just how perfect their solutions are. It's often the people on the fringes who think this is a hobby, who think that talking about uh, issues of injustice is uh, just like another sort of brand that you that you can stamp on your on uh, on your T-shirt. Uh, it's it's th- those folks who sometimes uh, are are quick to. Uh, 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 judge their political mm-hmm. opponents who are sometimes quick to, um, uh, quick to, uh, I think take on a, a view that if, if they can't get their way politically, then, you know, uh, then, then all, uh, you know, the, the ship's sinking. Uh, and, and so it's, it's really important to, again, just make sure that you're, um, that you're bringing a perspective to this that is, uh, that, that, that is not emanating from politics itself. So in a healthy third space, my heart then has to turn toward the marginalized, right? Let's see what Jenny says here. Yeah, so uh, we did a project, as Tasha was mentioning, where we recorded several women church leaders reading Matthew 25. And it's such a core part of the teachings of Christ because he, in this passage, speaks about if you are a true follower of me, if you see someone who's hungry, you will give them food. If you see someone who's thirsty, you will give them drink. If you see a stranger, you will welcome them in. It's this idea that Jesus fundamentally identifies with those who are oftentimes marginalized by society. And his whole ministry is around communing with those who are castigated by society and declaring that not only are these people made in the image of God, but they are worthy of our respect and dignity. And so I think if we are really followers of Jesus, that we have to reflect Jesus's teachings, his declarations, and the way that he did ministry into the way we do ministry, and we live out our lives as well. Matthew 25 is really just a, a, a clearing teaching from Jesus that uh, we, not just through our individual actions, but even as a society that is made up largely of Christians, have to have a welcoming posture, even when we have fears around those that are different than us. And I think for me, uh, with Matthew 25, it really is a stark reminder that, you know, Jesus really is calling us to do the hard things, that he is calling us um, to get over the challenges of not having enough time, of 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 feeling like we're overwhelmed, of even our own fears around, you know, what that could look like, and saying it's actually when you enter into these relationships that you can experience the presence of Christ. And in Hebrews 13, it actually reminds us that when we entertain strangers, that we are entertaining entertaining angels without being even aware of it. And that idea of entertaining strangers is actually philoxenia. It's love philo of xenia, the stranger. The opposite of philoxenia is xenophobia. It's a fear of the stranger. And biblical teaching actually specifically talks about philoxenia or loving the stranger. And so for us, as far as of Jesus, it's just a good reminder for us to go back into the scriptures to read actually what the Bible has to say about a topic like immigration. Uh, We actually have a a challenge called the I Was a Stranger Challenge. And if folks go, just Google um, I Was a Stranger Challenge, and you'll find a bookmark where we list 40 verses of scripture related to immigration scripture. And it's eye-opening for people because oftentimes when people think about an issue like immigration, they think, oh, that's just political. Um, But it's actually a spiritual issue. It's, it's, um, It's a scriptural issue. And when we see from Genesis to Revelation, God's heart beat for uh, the immigrant, for the widow, the orphan, and the poor, 
who are oftentimes grouped together, I think we can not only be enlightened in our own hearts of, of God's heart for these individuals, but also really um, engage um, our whole selves in learning what we can do to serve immigrants and refugees and, and also use our voice in speaking up for those who are vulnerable as well. But as my heart turns toward helping the marginalized amid advocacy, I may get upset with policies and systems and even politics itself. What should I do with these emotions? Michael is great here. Yeah, it's difficult because it's so easy to get, you know, taken in by some of the primary forms of political engagement that we're seeing. And then I'll just say, like, like we're human beings. And so sometimes, uh, you know, we, we see uh, people who are being manipulated, people who are being taken advantage of. Uh, and there's a there's a natural rise to, to anger. There's a natural rise to desire for you know retaliation and for 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 retribution. Um, and you know th- th- those are human things. What 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 you know we should be striving for. What we should be aiming for is to find ourselves on the side of what Howard Thurman called the disinherited, to, to find ourselves on the side of those, um, uh, of those who are, who are downtrodden in our politics and to uh, make sure that we're in touch with uh, folks who are not like us, folks who are, and I mean that socioeconomically, I mean that politically, I mean that racially, I mean that in all kinds of ways, um, so that we can be sure that when we're stepping into politics, we're doing so not just for our own uh, interests and advantages, uh, but uh, taking in and benefiting from a broader set of experiences and ideas than, than we could just have sort of on our own. Uh, yeah. There is no... We're in a terribly frustrating environment mm-hmm. and the the temptations to like withdraw or to uh, withdraw or just sort of um, say, look, I, I don't want any piece of this. I mean, these people are uh, 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 these people in politics, they're just in it for themselves or <laughs> making a. Um, at the end of the day, we have to understand that in this country, uh, politics is a reflection of who we are. Mm. That 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 uh, at the end of the day, politicians, our political systems, are responding to the incentives and disincentives that we uh, put into it. And so, if you don't like what's what you're seeing in our politics, and I'm not trying to be trite, there are uh, big money and big institutions. I get it. I can also tell you, I've seen up close from the White House, from campaigns, uh, uh, with the work that we're doing at the end campaign. I've seen individuals or small groups of individuals who have joined in common cause actually have and, and make a, a difference. And they do that out of a sense of civic and fraternal commitment um, that we need in our politics right now. Uh, Christians can provide, uh, and really all, uh, all citizens, I mean, you know, it, it, you, you don't need to have a religious background to care for your, your fellow uh, your fellow man or woman, you don't. But but there are resources in the faith uh, that propel us in that way, and I think our politics needs a lot a lot more of that um, and that that example, which I think will have an effect um, in how uh, the rest of the country operates. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor, theologian, and anti-Nazi dissident. 
His writings on Christianity's role in the secular world have become widely influential. We can't deal with finding a third space approach without it at least touching his approach. Catherine gives us a little history lesson here. Check it out. So I'm going to talk about um, my favorite thing about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So basically he was inspired to protest Nazism because in the early 1930s, he traveled to Harlem and visited a black church in Harlem. And that, in his mind, was where he learned to make the connection between... um, Yeah, Christianity and social activism. And I think this idea, like this theology of like what is happening to actual bodies matters. Like if it's just like all like pie in the sky, um, I hate that term, but you know, if it's, (laughs) but if it's all like, okay, well, you know, we're going to go to heaven one day and what happens down here doesn't matter. Like really that's a form of of heresy um, called Gnosticism. Anyways, he learns to reject that and that's kind of what inspired his protest. And so I will take this question as an opportunity to talk about the historic black church, which has always been a place of recognizing that justice is a part of the Bible. It's a part of what it means to be a disciple. God cares deeply um, about the suffering and pain of his people. Um, the black church was always a place of like dignity. And I think it's no, um, it's not a mistake that a lot, most of except for this current civil rights movement with Black Lives Matter. And um, most of the movements I was reading about women's suffrage, that most of the women that were, um, most of the black women that were actively involved in women's suffrage were Christians. And some of them were pastors in AME congregations, um, the civil rights movement, we all know about Martin Luther King Jr. and John Lewis. And so there is this, there there is a faithful witness of the church uh, that is very countercultural and is very, I, I think, clear-eyed about like what it means to be citizens of two kingdoms that has not ever idolized or confused American ideals with biblical ideals. <laughs> and I think, you know, one thing I would say is just trying to soak up more of that wisdom and like reading those books or, you know, going, listening to sermons. I mean, personally, I'm a huge fan of Charlie Dates. Um, But I think that there is a faithful witness. And I will say this. I think one of the things that helped me, you know, years ago when I was really wrestling with this and had a lot of anxiety about it, um, we did a Bible study with some girls about... um, the exodus and it was priscilla shire and the title of it is like one in a million so basically the idea is like something like two million um israelites started in egypt but only two (laughs) made it to the promised land joseph and caleb and why was that and what were the barriers to that thing and then it just made me realize like you know i think i think why doesn't everybody get this this is so obvious you know whatever and i think reading that story and not that i don't work for or have conversations to help people gain understanding um but that reading that bible study or doing that bible study really helped me understand that there's a reason why Jesus said narrow is the gate. (laughs) And I think, and I want to just encourage you um, for anybody that's in frustrated conversations or whatever, sometimes we just have to let the Holy Spirit do what, what only the Holy Spirit can do. Like, and go with, I mean, Dietrich Bonhoeffer went with the people in his underground, his own underground, um, seminary and, you know, and, and it's just, it, you know, if, even if it's by yourself, I mean, that's the thing I love so much about the hidden life is like, this is a man who was willing to stand on his own. And I think so oftentimes Christians 
whether it's politics or whatever, we, d- we don't want to do that. And so we'll just go along to get along among even among the body because we we don't want to be ostracized. We don't want to create strife. We don't want to, um, you know, and I think there's a difference between um, being contentious and being convicted. <laughs> and so um, and I think, you know, what does it mean to stand in your convictions? And I just think, yeah, I would say. You know, in America, the witness of the black church and I mean, they're even among like, you know, the white church, there are people that in their time were willing to stand on their own and say, this is not right. I'm not going to participate in this. Now, the thing is, again, those people were ostracized. They were talked about like they were crazy. I mean, black churches were targeted for bombings. Um there's a reason behind all that because it was a threat to white supremacy. It was a threat to this sort of cultural um, mindset that black people are inferior. And yet we have a faithful, we have a faithful witness and testimony from which to learn. Um, But I think a lot of people, again, don't want to submit to that because again, it's like this idea that like, I think are black people inferior or maybe their theology isn't as good as like, I don't know who pick your favorite white theologian. And I just think like looking at the testimony of people's lives um, and beyond Martin Luther King Jr. Like he's not the only one. Before we go, I love how Michael recenters our focus and our goals here. Listen. Yeah. Well, I, first I want to, um, you know, I I, I want to identify with, with 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 so many of those, so many of those feelings, and so 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 much of that, uh, w- wondering about whether you know justice is is possible, and, and uh, you know, th- th- then I, uh, you know, then I want to say, uh, we live now, we live in this moment, and justice is not our ultimate responsibility. Uh, uh, we're not the ones who are going to bring it through our own efforts. What we need to do, the, the, the only thing we can do is in, is in with the limited influence we have right now, uh, uh, with the limited influence we have just as human beings, try and steward that influence for the love of our neighbors. We got to mm-hmm. love our politics less than we love people. Um, and then we need to take that love of people in the politics, knowing we're imperfect, knowing that uh, uh, we may not have the 10 point plan. We may not know exactly. Um, but but knowing that w- we are using our voice for more than just um, what's beneficial for us, that we're using our voice for um, uh, what the Catholics call a preferential option for the poor, that, that, that actually uh, we're especially attentive to those who are hurting, uh, those who are. Uh, uh, facing the very brunt of injustice, uh, and, and uh, things may not turn out the way that you that you want them to. You're not responsible uh, for that. We can only be responsible for pursuing the good as we see it with the tools that we have, uh, and 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 and, and uh, hoping that our efforts joined with millions of others will uh, uh, will move things in, in a better direction uh, for, for, for people who need it. That's what politics is. Politics is not an individual sport. It's not an individual endeavor. It's not something that we can control the outcome of. Uh, what's helpful is Christians know that uh, we can't control the outcome of all that much. That politics mm. isn't isn't just like this unique area where 
we're in control of everything else and politics, you know, we got to deal with negotiating all these various things. No, life is complicated. Yeah. <laughs> and politics is complicated. And, and that faithfulness is not about sort of getting your way. Faithfulness is about what you do in the moment mm-hmm. uh, to follow Jesus where you are uh, and trust that he's ordering your steps. He's ordering he's your order, steps. He's ordering your steps. He's ordering your steps. Advocacy, politics, engagement, and so much more are in the third space. We got a good start to what can be very broad and essential to the fabric of what it means to be a Christ follower or Christian. We will deal with this more in depth in the future. I want to thank Jenny Yang, Catherine Freeman, and Michael Ware for their wisdom and insight on our role as Christians in the third space. That's all for now, but till next time, let's remember, even in the third space, to build bridges and not walls. Go to the donors table if you'd like to hear the unedited version of this podcast. Thanks for listening to the Be The Bridge podcast. To find out more about the Be The Bridge organization and or to become a bridge builder in your community, go to bethebridge.com. Again, that's bethebridge.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, remember to rate and review it on this platform and share it with as many people as you possibly can. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Today's show was edited, recorded, and produced by Trayvon Potts at Integrated Entertainment Studios in Metro Atlanta, Georgia. The host and executive producer is Latasha Morrison. Lauren C. Brown is the senior producer. And transcribed by Sarah Conitzer. Please join us next time. This has been a Be The Bridge production.